Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Lift up your hearts. We lift up to the Lord. Almighty God and Father, you are the source of every good thing. You are goodness itself. We have no other God but you. Our souls thirst for you, our flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So we have come into your sanctuary to look for you, to see your power and glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, our lips shall praise you, and we will bless you as long as we live, and we will lift up our hands in your name. Our souls will be satisfied with you, as with marrow and fatness, and our mouths will praise you with joyful lips, because you have been our help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, we will rejoice. Our souls, our souls follow closely behind you. Your right hand holds us up. Those who seek our lives will be brought down and fall by the sword, and we will rejoice in Christ our King. We will glory in his name. And so we worship you now, our Father, in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, world without end. And amen. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the first man out of the dust of the ground and formed the first woman from that man's side. And God brought them together, and they became husband and wife, one flesh, and were given the blessing of a mission to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And all of this goes together. There is a God, and he made all things, and therefore he knows all things. He knows what all things are for. And he designed the world to be fruitful by the labors of a man with a woman at his side in the covenant of marriage bearing children. This is the foundation of civilization. This is the foundation of all economics, all politics, all culture. This is like gravity, like logic, like math. This is reality. And every attempt to ignore this, deny this, subvert this, or openly destroy this is war with the world as it really is, and therefore war with the one who made it all. We confess every week that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We confess this in the face of those who say that we have no maker, that the world's evolved by accident and chance. We confess that God is our maker in the face of those who deny that people bear his image from conception to natural death. We confess that God is our maker in the face of those who deny that men and women are created male and female in God's image. We confess that God is our maker in the face of those who say that marriage is merely a custom and it can be anything that makes you happy. We confess that God is our maker in the face of those who say that motherhood enslaves women or that children are bad for the environment. We confess that God is our maker in the face of those who claim to be able to reorganize the world, redistribute wealth, and bring world peace by human wisdom. We confess that God is our maker because Jesus Christ is his only son, and by his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the power of sin and death has been broken, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the forgiveness of sins, communion with God's saints, the sure hope of resurrection, and eternal life now and forever. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Father, we confess that we have often confessed our faith in you, but we have not lived this faith in you. We have said that you are our maker, but we have been afraid of those who deny you. We have said that you are our maker, but we have not treated one another as fellow image bearers. We have said that you are our maker, and we have sometimes wondered if we are missing out on what the world says is happiness or success. 
Father, you know our hearts, and so we lay them before you now in complete honesty, asking you to forgive us for not speaking up when we should have, for not loving one another with our words and actions, for not loving our neighbors with the truth, and for envying the wicked. Give us courage and joy in you and in your truth, that we may not be ashamed of the gospel in any way. Father, we know that if we regard iniquity in our own hearts, this prayer will be ineffectual, and so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Proverbs 8 says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. The good news of the gospel is that before you found Christ, Christ had found you. Before you knew his name, he knew your name. Before you were saved, he was already planning to save you. Therefore, as a minister of this gospel, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Be God. The text this morning is Psalm 101. These are the words of God. I will sing of mercy and judgment. Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will, will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a per perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word that's presented here to us this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open and eager to receive it, and I pray your spirit would feed us. I pray that you would do this now, because we ask in Jesus' name, and amen. As I've been doing for a number of years, periodically, I preach through uh, a decade of psalms, 10 psalms at a time, and we've now come to Psalm 101 through 110, and we're going to be considering Psalm 101 uh, this morning. The most likely occasion for uh, the composition of this psalm is shortly after the death of Saul. You remember Saul was the uh, anointed king of Israel, but he became, through jealousy and envy, he became the adversary of David and wronged David repeatedly, despite David's conscientious attempts to be a loyal servant to Saul. And after Saul died in battle, and it looked likely that David was going to ascend the throne, this psalm is, is probably his statement of the kind of administration that he wanted to have as the king of Israel. This is a psalm that declares what he wanted his administration to look like. He is talking about the kind of behavior that will get a man excluded from his court and what kind of loyal and upright behavior will result in preferment. What is going to get you promoted if you're, if you're around David's court? What is going to get you promoted? And he is saying, what is going to get you banished? Another possible occasion for the psalm, it doesn't say this outright, but another possible occasion for this psalm is when David was about to become the king of a unified Israel, uh, but the import of this would be the same. So when David first reigned, he reigned at Hebron, and he was ruling the southern part of the kingdom, and uh, Saul's son reigned the northern part, and, uh, and so he might be talking about what what his court is going to be like at Hebron. He might also be talking about what his, um, his rule over a unified Israel would look like, but it, it all uh, comes out to the same thing. The same principles are, are in play. Older commentators uh, used to call this psalm the mirror for magistrates. 
the mirror for magistrates. What should a magistrate be thinking? How should a ruler uh, uh, gather people around him? A prince needs to understand the importance of character as he picks his courtiers and as he selects his cabinet. So it's not just a matter of character matters. Of course, character matters in the ruler himself, but one of the ways you identify the character of the ruler himself is the kind of characters he surrounds himself with. What sorts of people are in the court? What sorts of people are in the administration? What sorts of people are in the cabinet? What kind of people gather around the center of power is going to determine if it will be a righteous or an unrighteous power. Uh, the advisors, the counselors, the people who give input have a lot to say about what actually happens. And so consequently, ungodly rulers who seek out ungodly advisors are very clearly doubling down. A righteous man is going to gather righteous advisors around him to help him st uh, stay on the straight and narrow. Bringing the stakes down a notch, another name for this psalm has been the householder's psalm. The householder's psalm. In other words, what goes for the magistrate, what goes for the president, what goes for the king, what goes for the ruler of a nation, also goes for anybody who has any position of responsibility at all. In other words, it would apply to... Um, to employers, it would apply to pastors, it would apply to people who have responsibility for others. The householder psalm, in, in this application, people were saying, what kind of servants do you hire? What kind of employees do you want? You are going to be as good as your people. And so you want to have your people to be a certain, to be, have a certain frame, to share your basic values or to be open to your leadership in those areas. So how are employers to make their decisions? What kind of servants do you have? What kind of employees do you have? And of course, we recognize that the world is a messy place and it's not every, everything's not always up to us. We inherit situations and you, you have characters like in David's court, he, he had the uh, Dickens of a time dealing with Joab, you know, so you have people in your, um, in your entourage, in your administration that have their own centers of, um, they know where the levers under their desk are, and they know, how to, they know how to manipulate things. Joab was that kind of character. But this is David's statement at the front end of what kind of administration he wanted to have. What kind of administration he wanted to have. So, the psalm begins on the right pitch exactly. Verse 1, literally on the right pitch. I will sing. All right, this is, a, this is an occasion for music. I will sing of what? Of mercy and judgment both together. Of mercy and judgment together. Verse 1. Mercy and judgment, mercy and judgment together call for music. Mercy and judgment call for music. The psalmist vows that he will walk uprightly, and he does this because he wants God to come to him. He wants to stand upright. He wants to walk uprightly because he wants God to come. He wants God to be with him. Just incidentally, while we're here, David, when David sinned grievously with Bathsheba and then had her husband taken care of in battle, uh, sort of murder on the sly, using, using uh, the instrument of battle as his instrument of murder, when, when David did that, David knew that he had sinned as grievously as Saul had sinned before him. And when Saul sinned grievously, when Saul sinned against the Lord, one of the things that we're told is the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. When the spirit of the Lord comes upon someone in the Old, in the Old Testament particularly, this whole, the Holy Spirit comes upon someone and that is to e equip them for a particular task. It equips them to do what needs to be done. When the spirit departed from Saul, Saul's dynasty fell apart. You know, the whole thing came apart in his hands. The, so Saul sinned grievously against the Lord. The spirit departed from Saul and Saul's ability to rule Israel came apart. David knew that he warranted the same thing. So in Psalm 51, when he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, he's not praying that, oh Lord, I know that I might lose my personal regeneration. I know, I know that I might lose my salvation. He's not praying that. 
right? He, he is, um, he's praying in that same psalm, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He d doesn't want his salvation back. He wants the joy of his salvation back. He lost his joy, and he also knew that he had forfeited his right to rule Israel. He knew that if the Holy Spirit departed from him, he would not be able to hold the, his dynasty together. He would not be able to hold his administration together. So he's not praying that he not lose his salvation. He's praying that he not lose his kingdom. And he knows that he richly deserved to lose his kingdom. And that was a, a tragic affair later on. At the front end, David wanted to be not like that. He wanted to be the kind of ruler who would walk uprightly because he wanted God to come to him. This vow begins where it ought to. In verse 2, within my house. He says, within my house, I want to do this thing. I want to be this way within my house. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will thou come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Holiness begins at home. Holiness begins where everybody knows you. Holiness begins where you can't blow sunshine and have everybody buy it. You've got to, the way you are in home is the way you are. So he, he, his vow begins where it ought to, within my house. He resolves not to contemplate anything worthless. Verse 3, I will contemplate nothing worthless. I will not be entertained by anything worthless. I will not be uh, corrupted by anything worthless. But enough about your Netflix account. Not to be entertained by what is vile. He says, I will not be entertained by what is vile. And he hates the contagions of treachery. Verse 3. He hates that kind of thing. He refuses to be friends with the, headlong, uh, the headstrong and willful. Verse 4. That's what froward means. Someone who is froward is someone who is obstinate and who is obstinately inclined toward disobedience. A froward person is obstinately inclined toward, disobe toward disobedience. A froward person has a mind like a corkscrew. That's a froward person. He's just twisted. He's bent and given an opportunity, he's going to go in that direction. Given, given the least opportunity, uh, that's where it's going to go. You know that the front, you know your car needs the front end aligned when you let go of the steering wheel and it starts to go off into the, the ditch. A lot of Christians need their front end aligned. They, the, if you just let go, if, if the constraints of external pressure are off, they veer toward the ditch. That is being froward. D David wants to have nothing to do with such men. He also refuses to deal in slanders, meaning that he will not receive them. He will not receive slanders, verse 5. Arrogant eyes he will not tolerate, also verse 5. By contrast, he's on the lookout for faithful men, and he recruits them to join in the work around him. He wants faithful men around him. It's not enough to banish the froward. It's not enough to banish the slanderers. It's not enough to banish those who get ahead in politics by, uh, by means of the politics of personal destruction. The, the people who say, I'm going to find out something you said that was bad back in high school 40 years ago, I'm gonna, and I'm going to uh, get that going on Twitter. I'm going to set up a frenzy. That kind of person who gets ahead through slander and personal destruction, David says, I just don't uh, I, want, I want nothing to do with that guy. So he recruits faithful men, verse 6. He has a low tolerance for liars as well. Verse 7, a low tolerance for liars. Having begun with his own house, we see that his final goal is the cleansing of the city of God. That's his agenda. He wants, he wants to be a reformer. He wants to clean up the city of God. And he begins with his own life. He begins in his own heart. So let's uh, dig down into some of these things that he says here in this psalm. When David first came to the throne, and this is, this is given the history of David, given what Saul had done to David, this, this attitude of David's is really quite striking. When David first came to the throne, one of his first thoughts was how he could show mercy to the household of his adversary, Saul. You see that in 2 Samuel 9. Is there anyone, he says, is there anyone of the household of Saul that I can be kind to? 
Now, remember what Saul had done. Saul had double-crossed him for no good reason. Saul had attempted to murder him numerous times. Saul had acknowledged that David was in the right, and yet David still had to live as an outcast. Saul was on the throne in Israel, and David was sitting on a rock out in the wilderness, and David was, in effect, ruling from that position. Saul was... Uh, eaten up by envy. Saul was eaten up by jealousy for no good reason, and he wronged David repeatedly. And when God finally vindicates David, and Saul dies in battle, and David comes to the throne, David's first response is, is there anyone related to Saul that I can be kind to? Is there anyone related to Saul that I can show mercy to? This is not inconsistent with righteousness. This is righteousness. It's not inconsistent with righteousness. It is righteousness. Psalm 85 verse 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. These things go together. All the attributes of God uh, harmonize. The attributes of God are not in tension with each other. God is not in any way schizophrenic. God is merciful. God is righteous. God is holy. God is kind. God is severe. And all of these things harmonize. Uh, I'm reminded of Spurgeon's uh, comment when he was one time asked, how do you reconcile uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility? How do, you rec how do you harmonize the fact that God is sovereign over all things and the fact that we're not puppets? How do you harmonize those two truths? And Spurgeon said, well, I don't. I never reconcile friends. I don't need to reconcile friends. I don't need to harmonize. How do, I, how do you harmonize God's mercy and God's justice? How do you harmonize God's mercy and God's righteousness? There's no need. No need to reconcile friends. They, they've met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So a new regime, new management, a new order should start off on the right foot. And the right foot is mercy. The right foot is mercy. But you can't walk anywhere without the left foot. And the left foot is righteousness, justice, and integrity. You, can't, you want to get off on the right foot, and that right foot is mercy. But if you just do that, and then you do that again, then you're just going to be going in circles. You have to walk, you have, and we're going to come to that later. You have to walk, and in order to walk, you need the left foot as well, and the left foot is justice. Let me juxtapose. Notice how the scripture, in Scripture, a throne is established two ways. A throne is established by mercy, and the Scripture also tells us that a throne is also established by righteousness. In Proverbs 20, verse 28, mercy and truth preserve the king. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and his throne is upholden by mercy. What upholds a throne? Mercy. What keeps a person able to rule a nation? Mercy. What upholds a throne? Mercy, 20, 28. And then in Proverbs 16, 12, it is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. How is a throne established? A throne is established by righteousness. How is a throne upheld? A throne is upheld by mercy. And we have people who want uh, differ, differing personality types, right? One, um, one person has the kind of personality type that is so tenderhearted that they never want to see any kind of judgment fall on anybody, right? It's just mercy, 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 mercy. And another person is, is a hardliner. They belong to the Hangham High School of Thought, and it's all righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. And that's, that's lopsided. Both of them are lopsided. The Bible tells us that a, an administration is upheld by mercy, and the Bible tells us that an, an administration, a political order, is upheld by righteousness. These two things must go together. It's not possible to walk in biblical integrity without both. You cannot walk in biblical integrity without both. Now, some people might say, well, you, you know, you're conservative Christians and you believe the Bible and I before I came and and met you people before I talked to any of you I just read your stuff and I, you're so hardline and you're so it's all righteousness and I expected to come to church for the first time to find you stoning a sinner right and then I was surprised that that nobody was stoning sinners and what is 
uh, what's, what's with that? Well, that's a certain perception where the perception is, oh, it's all righteousness. Then other people say, well, I, uh, love, it's got to be love. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't serve a God. I couldn't worship a God who was not entirely loving. And, and they have a certain, uh, I, I want to come to a church where absolutely anything is accepted, right? Come as you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter who you're treacherous against. It doesn't matter what word you're breaking. We, we're just, we not, never practice church discipline at all for any reason. And it's love, love, love. Both of those are distorted caricatures of the law of God, of the character of God, and the way God wants his people, his, his deputies, whether they're his deputies in the church or his deputies in the civil realm or his deputies in the family to act. If you want to be a godly ruler in your home, mercy and righteousness both. If you want to be a godly pastor, godly elder, mercy and righteousness both. If you want to be a godly civil magistrate, mercy and righteousness both. And if you show mercy, someone's going to accuse you of compromise. And if you show uh, justice or righteousness, someone's going to accuse you of being harsh and pharisaical. You've got to keep everybody off balance and, de and display them both. So, mercy and truth, mercy and righteousness go together. Holiness is a, the, the thing that is characteristic of this psalm is David's um, declared intention to have a holy life in a holy house and a holy administration. What is holiness like? We generally understand that holiness is good, and this is the same kind of thing. We, sl we slice the character of God in two, and we set righteousness and mercy at odds with each other, and they're really not at odds with each other. We try to do the same thing with holiness. We understand that holiness is a good thing. We understand that holiness is straight and narrow, we understand that it is righteous. We understand that holiness is spotless and so on. But we must also understand that holiness is musical. Holiness sings. Holiness is happy. Holiness is happy. If you're unhappy, you're not holy. Right? You might be severe. You might be strict. You might be a hardliner. But that's not holiness. Holiness is musical. Holiness sings. Holiness delights. If you don't know how to delight, you're not, that's not walking in holiness. If you're, uh, well, holiness that does not overflow musically is not holiness at all. Holiness that does not overflow into music is not holiness at all, but rather severity. Proud men are generally hard men. Proud men are generally hard and strictness is often confused with the holy. But holiness is happy, and so it is that holiness overflows in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what holiness overflows. That's the natural overflow of holiness. I, I was talking to my dad uh, recently, and I've heard his testimony of his conversion while he was a midshipman at the Naval Academy. Uh, I've heard that testimony a number of times, but something new struck me this last time. He was converted in Baltimore after a football game, and he was, after his conversion, he was on a bus going back to Annapolis, back to the academy, and he said he was bursting with music and didn't know any songs. <laughs> he just had, and I had, he had no vocabulary. He knew no Christian songs. He knew no hymns. He knew nothing about it, and yet he wanted to sing. He needed to sing, and he didn't know anything that he could sing. Well, that's what holiness does. When you enter into holiness, you're entering into joy. When you're entering into holiness, you enter into joy, and joy lays about itself looking for a vocabulary, and that the vocabulary of joy is music. The vocabulary of joy is hymns, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Notice the first verse again here in Psalm 101, verse 1. The first verse says, I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Two times in that one verse. I'm going to sing. What's he going to sing about? Mercy and judgment. He's, he's talking about justice, and he's talking about mercy, and the fusion of those two things together, and the result is the, the internal uh, necessity of uh, erupting in music. 
But not everything that sings is holy. Holiness always sings. Reformations of religion are always musical. True reformations, true revivals are musical. That's the way it goes. But not everything that sings is holy. Music that is not holy and happy is simply a gold ring and a pig's snout. Paul compares high theological pretensions without love in his famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. He compares high theological pretensions without love to precisely this, jangling and discordant music, 1 Corinthians 13.1, which means that such music must be a really bad thing in God's sight. God... Um, if, if we love God, if we've entered into holiness, entered into joy, it's got to have a musical expression. And if we are professing that, but we don't really exhibit it, have not love, then it's just a jangling, it's just, uh, it's just clatter. It's just so much rhythmical and so, not so rhythmical clatter. God, and God hates it. So you, the, the, without going into this, don't want a deep logic lesson, but it's, there's a logical fallacy called affirming the consequent. All dogs have four legs, but the fact that this has four legs doesn't make it a dog. All dogs have four legs. This has four legs. Therefore, my cat is a dog. Therefore, this cow is a dog. Therefore, this moose is a dog. That, you know, you can see all holiness sings, but just because it sings doesn't make it holy. The fact that it sings doesn't make it holy. But if it's holy, it will sing. If it's holy, it's going to, be, it's going to overflow into music of necessity. And this is one of the reasons why we stress music the way we do in this congregation. And this is why I also want to constantly warn you against thinking that just because you know the hymns, just because you know the songs, that doesn't, that does, that doesn't wash the sin away. You want, to, you want the sin to be washed away by the blood of Christ and then sing as a consequence. The music is not going to wash anything away. The music doesn't fix anything by itself. The music is an expression of joy after the fact. Now, holiness at home. David has mentioned that he's going to walk in a perfect way within his house. There are few things worse than holiness abroad that will not or cannot maintain the facade while at home. Few things that are worse than holiness abroad, holiness out in the community of saints, holiness at church, holiness where everybody expects you to be holy, and then being unholy where everybody actually has to deal with the you that really exists. This has been a problem in every era. This is a problem. The Bible warns against it repeatedly. People who approach God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. The Bible talks about hypocrisy. All through, the, uh, all through Scripture, throughout the Old Testament and through the New, hypocrisy is warned against. So this has been a problem in every era, but it is particularly a problem in our era when people have started to think that God will judge us by what we decide to present to the public with our Facebook profile. All right, you can arrange everything pretty nice. Everybody, and it used to be you you know, you come to church on Saturday and, hey, you look nice. Yeah, I, I clean up pretty good. And you put the necktie on and you say, praise the Lord. And you stand up at the right time, sit down at the right time. And you can, you can do that. And people have done that for a long time. We now have the ability to project a superficial holiness in all over the world, right? We can do it with just a few clicks. We can have an open Bible and you can take a photograph of the open Bible with your home. And my word of Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, and click, and then out it goes. And but God sees what's going on in your home. God sees what's going on in your heart. God sees what's going on in your dirty little mind. Right? So God sees all that. David says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Are you the same person here at church that you are at home? Are you the same person at home as you are here? Has a snarl at the kids ever been transformed into a sweet chirrup because you had to answer the phone? You had to, you, in fact, you had to answer the phone mid-snarl. If you kids don't get your junk put away in about 15 seconds, I'm going to find the dullest butter knife in the drawer and I'm going to skin all of Ring, ring. Hello? Hello? Oh, I'm too, praise the Lord. 
I'm so grateful. I've been praying for you. And we think when we flip the hypocrisy switch, the kids go magically deaf at that moment. They, they, they got, got the butter knife part, but they, it doesn't work that way. Are you the same person? Are you the same person? You want to be real wherever you are. You want to be real at home and real at church and real at work. You want to, and you want it to be coherent from one place to the other. You want the people who see you at home, who see you at church, to recognize the same person. What, is, uh, what does David say he's going to, to do with the people who are not like that? He's going to cut them off. If you're like most of us, you've probably received emails in the past from marooned Nigerian princes who are trying to unload unspecified but enormous amounts of gold bullion, which they had with them in the airport in Manila somehow, and things went wrong and they, they looked you up. And, and <laughs> I know. And you wonder to yourself, why do they send these things out? I'll tell you because they work. <laughs> now, it doesn't work with everybody, but they send them out. They're not just amusing themselves. They're not saying, uh, they're, they're not comedians sending these scam emails out because they want everybody in the world to have a good laugh. They send these things out because some people answer them. They send them out because some people take that bait. They send them out because some people are, if, the, if you made a book about their life, it'd be called Gullible's Travels. Just one thing after another, and then, they, and then they, oh, click, and they click, and they answer it. So why are certain things for sale? Why are certain things for sale? Because there are buyers out there. Certain things are for sale because there are buyers. So Christians have a responsibility not only to not slander. Christians have a responsibility not only to not slander, but also to not listen to it. Christians have a responsibility not only to avoid slandering other people, but they also have the responsibility to not provide a market for slander. Don't provide a market for slander. Don't be a buyer. We have a responsibility not only to not tell lies, but also to not tolerate liars. We have a responsibility not only to not tell lies, but also to not tolerate lying to us. If you walk with the wise, you will be wise. If you walk with the conceited, you will become conceited yourself. You see that in verses 3 through 5 and verse 7. David is saying, I want these people away from my court, not only because I find them distasteful, not only because I don't like what they do, but because I want to take steps to avoid becoming like them. You're going to become like the people you surround yourself with. If you listen to the snake tongues, after a point, you will, be, you will be the one with snake ears. If you listen to snake tongues, after a while, you're going to have the snake ears. Not only do you not have a responsibility to be friends with everyone, and I want to say this particularly to you teenagers, not only do you not have a responsibility to not be friends with everyone, you have a responsibility to not be friends with certain people. You have a to stay away from certain people. You have a responsibility to not return some people's calls. You have a responsibility to guard your friendships. So in addition, you have the responsibility, and I'll say this again to the teenagers, you have a responsibility to not care what they might think about it or what they might say about it to others. Because the reason you're staying away is because they've got a loose tongue. The reason you're staying away is when someone comes up to you, when someone come, bustles up to you and says, did you hear what so-and-so did? Pss, 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 pss. And you say, no, really? And you're just gullible and you just bite, you bite. And you hear that and then you go away. What, what do you have every expectation they will do concerning you? They're going to they're gonna bustle up to somebody else and they're going to tell some story about you. You don't need that kind of grief in your life. The Bible does not tell you to be friends with everybody. The Bible does not tell you to be friends with everybody. In fact, the Bible tells you, emphatically commands you to not be friends with everybody. David says, I am going to cut certain people off. He's not saying I'm gonna throw them in jail. He's not saying I'm gonna execute them. 
He's not saying that I'm going to bring severe penalties down on them. They may just be sinners and not criminals. Do you see that? They may not be guilty of any crime, and still, he's not going to have them around him. You need to not go to certain parties. You need to stay away from certain circles. You need to steer clear of anyone who is going to corrupt you or entice you. My, my, Proverbs begins, my son, my son, if sinners entice, entice thee, consent thou not. Don't go with them. Don't hang with them. Don't spend time with them. And David says, that's the way I want my household to be. That's the way I want my business to be. That's the way I want my kingdom to be. I want to have faithful men recruited, and I want to banish those who are slanderers and liars. So what does walking mean? He says a couple of places in the psalm, he emphasizes the importance of walking. I will walk within my house, he says. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart, verse 2. And of course, I should have said this earlier, perfect here does not mean absolute perfection. It says in Psalms elsewhere, if God were to mark iniquities, who could stand? Blamelessness in Scripture has to do with accepting God's Word and availing yourself of all the um, graces to keep you from sin and the grace and mercy that is extended toward you if you sin. Uh, in 1 John, it says, uh, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So uh, when, when we sin, when we stumble, you acknowledge it. You deal with it honestly. You don't, you don't pretend. Your pretenses don't cover up sin, but the blood of Christ can deal with sin. So he's going to walk within his house with a perfect heart, verse 2. The one who walks perfectly is the man I will employ, he says in verse 6. The man who walks perfectly is the man I'm going to bring on, the, uh, and I'm going to be that man in my own house. As one commentator has noted, walking includes the ideas of motion, progress, and moderation. Motion, progress, and moderation. Walking moves and is not sitting or lying or standing. Walking involves motion. Walking progresses meaning that it is distinguished from jumping jacks or hopping in place. You can have motion that doesn't progress. All right, so walking is motion, and walking is motion that progresses. And that, and the third, is that walking is moderate. It is not all in a lather to get there. Walking is not all in a lather to get there. Just one foot in front of the other. When you take one step at a time and you're walking in the right direction, you're walking in the light, you're going to get there. You're going to make tremendous progress. And where shall we walk? Where shall we walk? In the light provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 8, verse 12, it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So how do, we walk in, how do we walk in the light? We walk in the light if we're right behind Jesus Christ. He's walking in the light, and if we're right behind him, then we're walking in the light. If you follow him, if you're following the light, if you're following the light of the world, you cannot be in darkness. So where do we walk? If we are following him, we are always behind him. We're always right behind him. And if we're right behind him, that means we are never in the dark. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and we are cleansed from all of our sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If you're right behind Jesus Christ in the light, then you're not going to be snarling at someone else who's also right behind Jesus Christ walking in the light. If we are... If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another is not a function of them improving their personality or you learning to lose a few of your irritating traits. Walking, having fellowship with other people is a function of following Jesus. If you follow Jesus and you're in the light and they're following Jesus and they're in the light, you have fellowship with one another. This, in turn, gives us something to sing about and fellowship with others whom we may sing with. Following Jesus means we have something to sing about, and following Jesus who are all, with people, other people who are also following Jesus gives us a choir. 
And never forget that if we follow Christ singing, this means that he is ahead of us singing also. He is the preeminent singer. Christ is the leader of the choir. When we sing the right songs with the right heart and in the right demeanor, we are imitating him. When we sing the right songs with the right heart and in the right demeanor, we are imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. God sings. Not only does God sing, but God sings not to you, not just to you. The scripture is his song to us. But God sings over you. God sings because of you. God is not just okay with you. God is not saying, well, I've got to forgive him because, you know, I'm God and that's my job. God delights in you. Now, we're all a ragtag bunch, bunch of sinners. We, we were dragged into the kingdom through the hedge backwards. We're all disheveled. We've got, we've got all kinds of problems. We've got twigs in our hair. Everything's a mess. And God says, and God sees you. And because of Jesus, he sees you and he breaks into song. God, let me read this Zephaniah piece again. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He's great. He's mighty to save. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. When he rejoices over you with singing, it's because he is mighty to save. We think it's humility. We think we're, we're, we're thinking that we're being humble when we say that uh, it's not, we're not worth singing over. And in ourselves, we certainly are not. But what we're actually saying is that God is not mighty, he's not mighty to save, and he's lying to us. But he's not lying to us, and he is mighty, and he is mighty to save. If you don't find an occasion to break into song, because God has broken into song because he saw you, then you're not paying attention. This is how holiness works. We are reflect, we're moons, not suns. The sun shines on us and we reflect light. When God shines on us, when God shines on us musically, we reflect musically. When God shines on us with his joy, we reflect joy. It's all derivative joy. It's all derivative singing. It's all derivative music. But it's got to be there. And if it's not there, then it's not the kind of Christian life that the Bible describes. The Bible describes holy, happy people. The Bible describes holy and happy people. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've provided for us in your spirit, through your word, in the gospel. I pray that you would help us as we meditate on these things, and I pray you'd make it all abundantly clear to us. Amen. The gospel accounts record that Jesus was offered wine just before his crucifixion, but he refused it. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink, Matthew 27, 34. And again, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it, Mark 15, 23. This was an offer of anesthetic, an offer to relieve some of the pain of crucifixion. In both Matthew and Mark, the very next verse says, then they crucified him. If you think about it, this is a wonderful part of the gospel too. Jesus not only endured betrayal and false accusation, not only did he endure the shame of an unjust verdict and penalty, as well as the mockery and derision of the crowds, he also endured the full brunt of the pain of crucifixion. He didn't blunt the pain at all. Wouldn't it have been enough for him to have died for our sins? Wouldn't it have been enough for him to be nailed to a cross and mocked and jeered? No, the full curse that needed to be faced, the full fury of God's wrath for our sin, needed to be faced, fully alert, fully awake, fully conscious. But the gospel accounts also record that Jesus did eventually receive a little wine on the cross. They say, 
he received some sour wine on a sponge, and then he cried out, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. John 19, 29, 30, Mark 15, verse 36, and Matthew 27, 48 through 50. In other words, Jesus refused wine until he had finished his work. He refused wine until he had accomplished his mission. He refused wine until our penalty had been completely paid. And that is the cup that he offers us here at this table. This is not wine for anesthesia. This is not wine for dulling the pain. Jesus refused that cup, and so it isn't the cup he offers us here. No, this is the cup of victory, the cup of mission accomplished, the cup that proclaims it is finished. What is finished? All your sins are washed away. What is finished? All your striving, trying to fix yourself, trying to earn God's favor or prove yourself to other people. What is finished? All the darkness, all the pain, all the death, all the betrayal, all the injustice, all the evil. It is finished. This is the grace of the cross. Do you need it? Then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that your son Jesus on the cross took no wine to dull the pain. And then when he had finished suffering, when he had done all that needed to be done for our sins, he took a little wine because the mission was accomplished. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. You've been reminded this morning that holiness is happy. Holiness is full of joy. Holiness sings. The gospel is the best joke in the history of the universe. And it's, it broke out 2,000 years ago, and slowly but surely, the whole world is breaking into laughter, breaking into song. That's the history of the world. And the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection will be when everybody just bursts into song, bursts into laughter. So you might as well get started now in your homes, around your tables. God is good. He's so good. And he's been good to you. So sing, laugh, and be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And now receive with believing hearts the blessing of your God. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen. Amen.